every part of the Habsburg Empire and every member state of the of the EU, they have different cultural t- traditions, political traditions, different geography, different interests. So everybody comes to the capital uh, on whatever the issue at hand, and they all disagree. Uh? Mm. And this is normal. The Habsburgs, you know, kicking the can down the road, that was their trade. As one of the prime ministers in the 1870s once said, you know, Jean-Claude Juncker could have said it. I was born in 1881, in the great and mighty empire of the Habsburg monarchy. But you would look for it in vain on the map today. It has vanished without trace. I wanted to start the episode today with this quote from Stefan Zweig, World of Yesterday, for two reasons. First of all, because it's a wonderful book that really beautifully describes this powerful sense of loss. So can only recommend that you give it a read. But more importantly, I chose it because in this episode, we will challenge the idea that the empire of the Habsburgs vanished without trace. In fact, its legacy remains incredibly strong in Central Europe specifically, and across Europe more generally. Some might even see in the EU an offspring of a buried liberal empire. So, today we will explore what we owe to the Habsburgs and weave that parallel between the Austro-Hungarian Empire and the EU. Joining us in this time capsule of an episode, we have Caroline de Gruyter, journalist of All Things Brussels, and author of Mondier Monde Demain, published in French, which covers exactly today's topic, so do give it a read if you want to dig in a little further on today's topic. On the other side of the line, we have former Talking Politics podcast star and professor of political economy at Cambridge, Helen Thompson. She recently published Disorder, Hard Times in the 21st Century, a top-rated account on the three crises rocking Western democracies in the 2020s. As usual, the full conversation will be available only to our Patreon subscribers. Thanks to all of you, and on to the show. Well, uh, as, as Franco said, this this episode has been quite a quite a long time in the making. And just to get started, could you please give us a brief overview of the history of the Habsburg Empire? What are some of the key moments or features that are relevant to a comparison with today's EU? Uh, and just just allow our listeners to come into this, this conversation with a bit of a, a baggage, uh, starting with Caroline. Okay. Uh, the Habsburg Empire, well, I'm not a Habsburg Empire uh, expert. I am a Europe, uh, EU expert, rather. Um, but living in Vienna um, about 10 years ago, for a couple of years, I saw many features that interested me uh, in the Habsburg Empire. Um, the Habsburg Empire, grossly saying, is... Uh, you know, I think is, has existed for, 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 for several centuries, five, six centuries. 
and um, it covered uh, large parts of Central and even Eastern Europe. Part of what is now Western Ukraine uh, belonged for some time to the Habsburg Empire, as did the city of Dubrovnik, for instance, mm. Southern Poland, um, and uh, Austria up to the to the Swiss border. Um, the Habsburg Empire, I think, was characterized um, by the fact it was a state, which the EU is not, uh, but it was characterized by the, by the fact that it uh, consisted of a lot of uh, the smaller and, and, and bigger uh, separate nations, uh, language groups and religious groups. All, and although it was, it was ruled in a rather I mean, this was century ago, centuries ago, you know, it perished in 1918 at the end of the, uh, and because of, I think, the First World War. Um, but it was characterized by a, uh, a surprisingly, uh, so although uh, being autocratically ruled by a surprisingly um, liberal way of, of dealing with all these uh, groups, um, it was uh, just like the EU is today, a sort of a rule of law a system where the rights of minorities and the different groups were more or less uh, guaranteed. And even uh, when that was not guaranteed, when the emperor could take a decision, uh, he would often make it make the rounds um, mm. to all these different groups and see... Um, what their red lines were and, 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 and what they wanted. And he would often take those into account when uh, taking decisions. Why? Because he wanted to keep them loyal uh, and, and wanted to keep them on his side because they were surrounded by big rivals, uh, uh, Russia, uh, the Ottoman Empire, France, and so on, who were constantly trying to peel parts of the of, of the empire away so let me stop there um, this is the way I look at the at the main features of the Habsburg Empire we will come back to the comparison with the EU in, in more detail of course but um, just kind of a yeah. starting conversation to give some features of the empire so people don't come in completely blind on, on the Habsburgs mm -hmm. um, Helen yeah, and I agree with a lot of what Caroline said. I think it's important to see that the the Habsburgs, um, as a dynasty, um, that ruled what came later to be the Austrian Empire and then the Austro-Hungarian Empire, come up. You know, they rise in the in in the sixteenth century, um, in that period um, when really the the rise of Ottoman power has thrown Europe and European politics into into um, some. Um, disarray. Mm -hmm. I, I think that it's important to see how there is embedded as much, I think, in some sense of the idea of the Austrian Empire as the reality, rather than the reality of it, of the claim to be a cosmopolitan site of authority, uh, to be multinational, and in some sense to be able to accommodate those nationalisms within a, a broader unity. And I think that's part of the attraction of the idea of the Austrian Empire and the Habsburg, what came to be called the, the Habsburg myth in the um, 20th century after the empire had come to an end, because that idea of 
um, unity and diversity, which had been a Habsburg slogan, is something I think that then gets like reformulated in different versions of the uh, European um, project. I think the other thing that really is important to see about the Habsburgs, though, is it is that because they became the the, the, the crown of the Habsburg became Holy Roman Emperor um, for a while until the end of the Holy Roman Empire, um, the beginning of the the nineteenth century, that the Habsburgs connect to a longer European history as well. The legacy of the end of the Roman Empire, um, the rise of the Carolingians, uh, yeah. and then their importance is part of a story by which the Roman legacy in a way shifts from the western part of Europe to the more central and eastern parts of Europe. I think so Helen just started talking a little bit about it the issue around well you know especially this topic about the EU in the Habsburg Empire is usually the parallels about how the late Habsburg Empire was a haven of civilized cosmopolitanism you know, and then you get nationalism rearing its ugly head and it all comes down and it's, you know, paradise lost. This is a vision that has been popularized by intellectuals like Stefan Zweig, like uh, Joseph Rotz. But what was the balance between cosmopolitanism and nationalism, uh, Helen? Um, what was in reality? Yeah, I think it's um, a lot more complicated than the idea that uh, the the late Austrian Empire, the, uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, is some you know bastion of cosmopolitanism, cosmopolitanism in a world you know that's being destroyed by um, nationalism. I think that that becomes a very alluring story to tell uh, after the horrors of the the First World um, War, but it ignores some really I think quite fundamental things about the last decades uh, of the uh, of the Habsburgs. It really dodges around the question of the union between the Austrian Empire and Hungary um, from 1867. Uh, the ways in which other nationalities within the empire had politically to be accommodated. Now you could say that in accommodating some of the nationalities that the Austro-Hungarian Empire was you know, a considerable um, success story and it certainly was compared to what came after the Austro-Hungarian Empire during the uh, interwar um, years. But I think that the Hungary question complicates this really you know, quite sharply. And also, in a way, the question uh, of Austria's relationship to Germany uh, and how much of under how much underneath this idea of Austria as a in some sense as a supranational ideal, there actually is a version of German nationalism, pan Germanism, that in itself is a destabilizing force within the empire. And I think. Those are the questions actually that, that Joseph Roth is particularly uh, interested in. I don't think he has such a romanticized um, view uh, of the of the of the of, of the Austro-Hungarian Empire as, as is sometimes presented. He laments it mm. because he understands what's lost with it, and he understands that in relation to the the the, the Jewish question. But I don't think that he ever kind of really um, believes. That the Austrian part at its core was actually free of a version of German nationalism or Austrian nationalism, whichever mm. way you want to think about it. 
So um, going back to Caroline in a second, but just a, an anecdote, which I thought was quite interesting. Went to Austria two years ago and uh, did the most American thing in my in my life. Um, you know, mm. and I've been in a fraternity, um, which was the a sound of music tour of Salzburg. Um, so that was very funny, but they taught us this incredible anecdote, which was that in the in the movie The Sound of Music, there's the you know, famous scene of the German troops marching in Salzburg. And you know, they 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 put a Nazi flag in the background and the rest of it. The authorities of Salzburg at first were very uncomfortable with it. But the producers, the American producers said, if you don't allow us to do that, if you don't allow us to do that, we'll just have to take the archive pictures. And obviously the archive pictures had the entire city of Salzburg loudly, loudly applauding the arrival of the German troops into Salzburg. So in the end, I think the authorities of Salzburg allowed the Americans to do whatever they wanted uh, in Salzburg. So they didn't want this kind of um, idea of people of Salzburg being uh, clapping and applauding for the, the new German um uh involved not invaders but uh the new the new occupiers and so caroline surely mm. there's a little bit of a Habsburg myth and we'll go back and how it was kind of crafted but in another, another extent i think you make the case that nonetheless there was a very strong cosmopolitan energy in the empire which perhaps yeah. you don't quite see in other political entities especially at the time um i think um, yeah, that's definitely true. Um, I think it was very, uh, uh, a very cosmopolitan place and very comparable to, to the EU today. We'll go in, into that later. Um, but it was, it was a safe haven for, 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 for Jews for a long time, for instance. Mm -hmm. uh, and nationalism did exist, uh, but it was, a, it was not um, formulated in terms of uh, you know, exits. Mm. So the story that we all learned at school, I think, that the Habsburg Empire was was killed by nationalism, in my view, uh, is not is not really accurate, because um, the, the 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 nationalists that you had the Czech nationalists um, uh, who were very jealous of the German speakers. And they were very, uh, they resented the fact that they could hardly uh, initially speak Czech at school, for instance, at their own schools. Um, so they were constantly fighting for more, for the right to have their own uh, Czech poetry printed mm. and, 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 and so on. So every, uh, almost every one of those nations had these kind of nationalists, but they were, they were fighting for social rights for cultural more cultural uh, room for maneuver mm. um, but never advocated exits actually when the first world war broke out in 1914 um, uh, all the, the 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 nationalists were more or less behind the kaiser you know mm. they all wanted to give uh, this the, the serbs a bloody beating uh, people were lining up in all the corners of the empire were lining up to be uh, to be drafted into the into the imperial army to go to the front and they went there and actually the Habsburg empire fell apart not at the front I mean it was going badly from the first day mm. um, but at home and if you look at how it dissolved uh, again uh, there was no plan so it was in a it was in a completely chaotic way that it happened mm -hmm. um, so the, I think till, till the end, actually, 
what prevailed in the empire was a more um, people were so used to uh, to to the, the common way of, of of dealing with problems, even if that common way was incredibly difficult, just like it is now in the EU. Um, they were more used to this than uh, all going their own way, and the nice proof finally of that is that the ones who were always insisting most on doing everything their way the hungarians they were the ones who left last you know mm. they locked the door basically of the of the empire they had they had gotten so far with um uh, demanding system. more mm. rights yes it is very interesting also because of the parallels but today and they see mm. those parallels themselves as well huh? i've written a book about the parallels and there are several hungarians in there who who say yes that's how we are you know mm. but within the the framework the, the common framework um we uh we milk out that framework so much um that we actually have the best deal of of all of them yeah. So it's an interesting way of, of looking at it. Yeah, they were the last to leave. Yes, and and uh, sort of shifting on to uh, some of what uh, Caroline has just walked us through, dovetails into the next question nicely, um, uh, because you you do have you mentioned the <clears throat> Hungarian case, and I think in the national consciousness in in Hungary, there's a clean sort of break from uh you know when Hungary was essentially uh dominated by 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 Austria to the to the um to the dual monarchy after uh mm. you know middle of the, the 19th century when Hungary becomes a sort of a uh, of an um sort equal of a partner, partner. Yeah. an equal partner um how what is the legacy of the empire in central Europe is it is it only being heralded in Austria and forgotten in Croatia and how do the Hungarians relate no. to it yeah, what surprised me, so I lived in Vienna between 2013 and 2014, um, coming, and I'd lived before in, in Brussels for, for many years. Um, what surprised me is how, I mean, nostalgia is maybe a, a big word, but there is a lasting, there is nostalgia, but there's also a lasting legacy of the empire, of the way of doing doing things, of the way of doing business, the way of looking at things, um, which, which surprised me. It was very strong. One day I went to Dubrovnik, for instance, which had mm. always been very resentful of the uh, of Habsburg rule, which didn't last, which only lasted like a hundred years there. It, and before that, it had been an independent city-state. So they resented these people from, from Vienna a lot. But afterwards, uh, they went through hell. <laughs> mm. And they realized that actually what the Habsburgs had been doing there had, uh, had benefited them a lot. An independent, more or less independent uh, justice, uh, um, judiciary, sorry. Mm-hmm. Um there was this kind of uh, uh, always negotiating about everything, strong institutions, um, and that actually it was a very benign rule. And this sentiment is also very strong, I would say, in in in, in the Czech Republic, in Slovakia, mm-hmm. in many places, maybe less so in in Hungary, 
because they always put themselves, the Hungarians always put themselves um, uh, aside of, of, mm. of, of these considerations in a way. Um, but yeah, even, I mean, when you go to the opera in Vienna, um, it still closes at 10 o'clock in the evening, always. So if it's a long opera, it starts earlier. If it's a shorter opera, it starts later. Why? Because the Kaiser, Franz Josef, he always liked to go to bed uh, on time because he was an early riser. <laughs> and they still kept it. So when you call a restaurant because you want to, you, you plan to eat a schnitzel after uh, the opera performance, uh, they will tell you, okay, and they, 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 you don't need to tell them what time the opera is finished because they know it already, you know, <laughs> these kinds of things. Uh, and there's even uh, 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 some academic research has been done showing that in, in countries like Romania uh, and Poland, uh, which have been, you know, countries for, for, for a long time, um, and people living there now, they, they go back uh, several generations, you know, having lived the same kind of a system, that in the parts that used to belong to the Habsburg Empire, there's a stronger, stronger support for um, um, local courts and uh, local uh, institutions, yeah, state institutions. Why? Because it's I mean, they've they've, um, they've they've lived through this for centuries uh, under Habsburg rule, um, and it's it it's it it's it colored the mentality, and it still does to this day. It's incredible, I think. How, so it also tells you what what eventually maybe uh, the lasting influence of. Um, of, of the EU could be. Mm. I mean, we will know this only in, in, in a couple of centuries from now, I guess, but uh, mm. or in at least decades, but uh, it, it's an interesting question. Yeah. Helen, is, is there anything you'd like to push back against on this question of the legacy in, uh, the, in the, the countries that formed the empire? I mean, I, there's undoubtedly um, a legacy uh, of the of the Habsburgs, and you can see that in in the architecture uh, of some of the places in that was part of the uh, Austrian uh, Empire. You, you you can see that you know, the present borders of states you know, are contingent and something where there was a certain prior cultural unity um still has its still has its legacy i, I think that, that that's um undoubtedly um true i mean i think i would push back a bit on the question of the the jewish question in relation mm. to um, the austrian um, empire because i think that one of the things that happened um, particularly you know, after the second world war for uh, obvious um reasons um is that the era of the the Habsburgs just seemed something that really was worthy of nostalgia because of the catastrophes that that followed when the austro-hungarian empire had come to and then the interwar years and then and then the uh, the second world um war but i don't think it's quite possible to uh, disentangle anti-semitism 
from the Habsburg era. And particularly, I think that's true in relation to Vienna, not least because of the, the time that Hitler spent there and the, the role yeah. that Vienna played as a city in forming Hitler's own um, anti-Semitism. I mean, Vienna was the place where I would say that in Europe, at least, that in a certain kind of democratic politics, or at least in parliamentary politics, that you see um, people running for office quite successfully in Vienna using anti-Semitism in order to um, win um, votes. So I think that the history uh, of this issue is is quite complicated. You can see why the Habsburg ideal seems such a, a contrast to the catastrophes that are going to come, but at the same time, I don't think the catastrophes are going to come during the 1920s and 30s can really be separated from the history of the Habsburg Empire either. You mentioned uh... Uh, Karl Luger, uh, uh, who was mayor of, of Vienna, and, and even uh, Herzl also was a journalist in Vienna when Karl Luger was running to become the mayor of the city. Uh, Francois, go ahead. Yeah, and so I think we moving on a little bit from the legacy in Central Europe to the kind of parallels between the EU and the Habsburg Empire, which is very much at the heart of your book, Caroline, the Habsburg Empire and the EU. Um, we know, for example, the EU loves the figure of Charlemagne, for example. He's very popular within the EU. He's really much part of the iconography, the mythology, the storytelling of the EU. But where does the Habsburg Empire lie in the way the EU sees itself and its mission? Caroline? Um, I think <laughs> what is what is so similar is the fact that both are or were, I, I never know what, what, what kind of, uh, whether to use past tense or not, mm. but, uh, um, but both are multinational. Huh? And that implies a certain way of, 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 uh, of going about things. It implies uh, going for compromise solutions. If you don't want to, uh, you know, Every part of the of the Habsburg Empire and every every member state of the of the EU, um, they have different cultural traditions, political traditions, different geography, different interests. So everybody comes to the capital uh, on whatever the issue at hand, and they all disagree. Huh? Mm -hmm. And this is normal. This is this is how it uh, how how the system is designed. Um, what struck me uh, after having covered the banking crisis and the and the and the refugee part of the refugee crisis and, and the euro crisis in in Brussels is uh, discovering that the Habsburgs were actually they called it Fortwurstel and Durchfretten, you know, kicking the can down the road. That was their trade, as one of the prime ministers in the 1870s once once uh, once said. You know, Jean Claude Juncker could have said it. So whatever the issue at hand, everybody flies in from a different direction and wants something else. And if you keep overruling certain, uh, several of them, in the in the end, um, if they don't recognize themselves or parts of their wishes uh, in the final decisions, they will just uh, they will lose interest and try to leave or just you know slam the door behind them um look at brexit huh? yeah. um this even so even though the habsburg empire was autocratically ruled i mean the imperial family you can see that still in the museums 
uh, they ate from, from silver plates or even golden plates. Um, it was a very top-down kind of system, but they already, uh, in the 18th century, which is, which is rather long ago, they realized that if we don't listen to all the constituent parts and take their demands into consideration, uh, they will walk over to the other side. Um, and so this is part of the reason why uh, Empress uh, Maria Theresia set up schools in all the, that was the first real bureaucracy uh, in the world, uh, schools and hospitals for the people, not like we have nowadays, but at the time this was, a, this was a revolutionary. Why? She understood that the empire had to supply added value to the people if, if it wanted them to remain loyal. And I think the exact same um, um, consideration is the most important one for the European Commission, for instance. Look at what it is doing now during the pandemic. Look at what it is doing uh, uh, now with the war in Ukraine going on, trying to, 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 to supply uh, added value, commonly bought vaccines to make sure that everybody can get them and to prevent uh, uh, rivalry uh, among member states. Um, Nobody ever wanted to have a, a, an energy union in the EU or a defense union. And we're, we're talking about all these all these things right now because security is so important for, for each and everyone. And so stumbling along, taking those decisions, um, but trying to keep everybody on board. And that's why these decisions, they look, they're unreadable. Nobody understands them. Mm. And there's all, there are always like 12 exceptions in every paragraph, uh, phasing out periods and, and all this. And it, to me, it was a big surprise that it worked more or less the same way in the Habsburg Empire. But it's probably, so everybody's always complaining about it. Yeah? You, you mentioned Joseph Roth, you mentioned, mentioned Stefan Zweig. Uh, they all... They ridiculed uh, the empire, not to speak of, of writers as Musil, but to us, they're still very modern writers in a way. Uh, they keep being, their books keep being uh, printed and reprinted. Why? Because we have the same dilemmas. We always criticize it because we're always dissatisfied, but at the same time, this, this sort of half-baked half uh, status uh, because we work with compromises of compromises, is probably also the secret to its success. Um, Helen, in your article for Habsburg Myth and the EU, you have a more critical point of view of the way the kind of Habsburg, what you call the Habsburg Myth, um, plays on the way the EU approaches itself and members of its periphery, namely Greece in the debt crisis, um, I was wondering if you could walk us through that argument of the way the Habsburg myth has played a role in the way uh, the EU has dealt with the case of Greece. Hi there, um, it's not Helen, unfortunately, it's me. Just to let you know that the response to that question and essentially the last half of this conversation will be for our Patreon subscribers. And as always, feel free to do that if you want to support the show and to listen to the other half of the episode. Now, on to the outro. Thanks a lot, Helen, and thanks a lot, Caroline, for this 
fascinating conversation. We could have gone on for uh, much longer, I feel, but fortunately <laughs> we have to wrap at some point. Um, yeah. But thank you so much for those uh, two visions of the Habsburg Empire and how they relate to the EU. Uh, Caroline, you wrote the Habsburg Empire and the EU. And Helen, you published the Habsburg Myth and the EU, an article on this exact topic. Um, I think slightly different theses on that, but I think both make for a very well-rounded picture on this relationship. So thank you so much for both of you for accepting the invitation and coming on Uncommon Decency. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. Thanks for having us. That was very nice. So Helen Thompson and Caroline de Gruyter are both out after we've recorded this uh, stupendous episode and really fascinating episode about uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire and the EU. Uh, what did you think about it, Francois? Um, I, I love those historical episodes. We did one with Luc Midela and Pierre Manon, a kind of kind of a more a broader view of history and then the EU. We did one on Napoleon. Uh, we did one on revolutions of 1848. And I think they're really an essential part of what we are trying to do here at Common Decency, which is not only look at the current events of what's going on in Brussels and what's going on with various local elections or national elections, but it's to really understand what it is to be European. And I think understanding our history, understanding the legacy we have with you know massive entities like the Habsburg Empire is really important and part of our mission here. Um, I really enjoyed the conversation. It was great to have two. I mean, Helen Thompson is a podcast star as well, so it was great to have her. And they both, you know, thought pretty seriously about this question. So it's it's very easy. Sometimes you invite guests and you hope they'll be able to tack on with the topic. But in this case, there was no fear whatsoever because it's really something they both thought a lot and they came with this kind of interdisciplinary approach to it. You know, Caroline is a journalist. Uh, Helen um, is more of an academic. And so they managed to kind of put their experience to touch on this topic. One, one thing which I kind of regret we didn't have time to talk about, but it is a point I read in uh, Eugénie Bestier, the uh, Figaro journalist who reviewed Caroline's book, uh, you know, a very favorable review because the book is very good. But there's one point she makes at the end, which I thought is quite good. So let me try and kind of translate a little bit. Um, she says, the unique common um, point between the globalized elite and the Habsburgs is the cosmopolitanism. But the cosmopolitanism consumerist without any sense of honor and duty. Brussels is incapable of putting a face on um, banknotes where the double monarchy of Austro-Hungary was capable of producing this cultural, literary, musical effervescence, which has no comparison nowadays. Where are the clips, the Mahlers, the Zweigs of the European Union? And I think that's an important point because... I think the parallels we, we explore today are really interesting, tell us a lot about the EU, tell us a lot about, about the Habsburg Empire. But I think something which we should have talked about more if we had time is essentially the lack, you know, there isn't this cultural effervescence. There isn't this sense that we have this kind of shared culture that is vibrant at the same time. And, you know, it, it's, it's probably more of a feature of what's going on internationally where I don't think there's been you know, a, a, a great literary or cultural richness at the moment. Uh, maybe my tastes are too conservative, I don't know. But I think that's something that's slightly lacking. And 
if you take away the issue of culture and literature, the lack of incarnation, um, you know, faces that we can all look up to, shared shared history, shared uh, traditions, a desire to continue those traditions, I think are slightly lacking in the way the EU presents itself and the way it's um, trying to connect Europeans. I think it's lacking this aspect. And we talked a little bit about how, you know, Charlemagne is this kind of figure, but to be honest, I don't think it's developed enough. Yes, and I, I have to sort of, you know, just from the get-go, I just want to give a little bit of background about my uh, knowledge of the Habsburg Empire before uh, recording this podcast. Uh, as, as I think I've, sh- I've said already a couple of times on this show, I spent the summer in Hungary in 2000 and, and 2021. Um, and um, what really struck me at the time was that Hungary uh, likes to celebrate the way that it wrestled autonomy from the Austrians. It doesn't. It doesn't celebrate. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's very conscious of the fact that before the 1860s, Hungary was essentially, uh, you know, uh, uh, an, uh, a lower uh, was on a lower rung than the Austrians. The, the Habsburg were ruling over Hungary as they were ruling over parts of Croatia, Slovenia, and other uh, parts of the empire. But the Hungarians just weren't really in the cockpit until um, the generation of Dak Ferenc, who has, a, who has a, a square named after him named downtown Budapest. Um, and, uh, you know, in the, in the 1870s, uh, they, they, uh, the Hungarian nationalists were able to wrestle uh, some level of autonomy from the from the Austrians, and 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 that gives way to to what we call the dual monarchy. Um, so my my um, my initial uh, thought process about this was, well, isn't this kind of what's happening with the EU at the same time? I mean, we're seeing these nations that are uh, that are doggedly resisting European supranationalism and that want to assert their place within. Uh, a European, an EU of nation states. So I, I wonder just how far we can, uh, just how far we can make that parallel uh, between, say, Hungary in the Austro-Hungarian Empire and Hungary within the EU today. Uh, because you know, shortly if you go by the rhetoric of Viktor Orban, it looks like Hungary is trying to achieve many of the. Th- many of the same things now under the EU than it did in in eighteen sixty seven. I, I think it's a point that Caroline made really well. You know, in her book, she has lots of conversations with especially Hungarian diplomats. And there's a sense that they want to stay, you know, begrudgingly stay within the, the, the entity, but milk as much as they can from this common entity without rocking the boat too much either. And, you know, I think the parallels here with obviously what's going on at the moment in, in, in Hungary are, are really telling. Um Another point which which we could have covered if we had a bit more time, but I think it's the Habsburg family themselves. And and um, Caroline's book ends with a, a great portrait of Otto, Otto Habsburg. He is the elder son of the last emperor of, of Austria, Charles. And he is, you know, he's been one of the strong defenders of the European construction. He was a strong Catholic. And he has kind of this really interesting vision of what Europe should be. He, he wanted to make sure that the banks couldn't be higher than churches, for example. And he had this kind of vision of Europe, you know, not of Europe of the market or Europe of, of law, uh, but a Europe that'd be, first of all, integrated in history. And 
Um, there's this great, great quote from him saying, Europe must grow like a tree and not rise like one of those American skyscrapers. Um, I think I think that vision is missing a little bit in the conversation in Europe. It's, you know, for or against um, the you should be, doing, should be doing that, shouldn't be doing that. I think there is a lack of a kind of cosmopolitan vision, which is also rooted in the kind of history of Europe. Um, you know, it's, it's tradition, it's past. Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not asking for, for, for banks to be raised and to make sure they're, they're a smaller than, than churches. But I think this strand of kind of Europeanism, of cosmopolitanism, is singularly absent in the conversation around Europe. And, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that's exactly when common decency is, but I think to some extent we, we want to popularise this kind of vision of, you know, a Europe that thinks about where it comes from, what it has inherited from, what makes it, as a result, a singular entity. And so we hope we will be keep keeping, you know, we'll, we'll be covering other topics, but I hope we will be able to keep um, fleshing out that vision a little more in the years to come. Yes. And I think, you know, I, I in fact, I, I wonder myself whether, you know, when Helen says in the beginning of her article that the EU owes an imaginative debt to the Habsburg Empire, I wonder whether she means that the debt itself is imaginary, that it doesn't, that it's hmm. not anchored in the real world, or that it it's a it's a real debt uh, that that is located in the as part of the EU's imagination. imagination, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I mm. um, I have read the article. Um, I think it's a bit of both. She she thinks she calls it the Habsburg myth. Um, you know, the idea that there's been this kind of vision that Zweig pushed is is exaggerated. That the, the Habsburgs were exactly this cosmopolitan entity. But I think you're right. I think it's a little bit of both in, in, in this case. Yes. And also you had you had some thoughts as well about the cultural effervescence, right? Um, go, yeah. go ahead. What, what, what did you mean by that? Yeah, I think. I mean, what can we point out as European arts of the past two or three decades? You know, things which. Which are immense, you know, stuff which we know will survive the test of time in 50 years or 100 years you know um you know what if in 100 years there is a still one common decency podcast uh, and they look back at this era what would they'll be able to point out as kind of strong cultural productions i'm not sure exactly to be honest um again maybe i'm a little uh conservative or in my taste but i'm not sure exactly what people will be able to point out and that's maybe a big difference with the austrian empire austro-hungarian empire is the cultural richness of the, the the late Austrian Empire was huge, and which is also, I think, why we've got a bit of a nostalgia of it because um, it's a bit biased by the fact that you know our, our, our lens into that world is reading uh, Zweig's fantastic novels about this era. Um, so yeah, again, you know, who are who are today's uh, Stefan Zweig's? What are the big portraits of big productions which will look back with a lot of, lot of pride in in 50 years time i'm not sure yeah yeah well this was a a fascinating episode uh uh and um and we look forward to doing more of these historical uh surveys or you know exposés yeah um but thank you for doing this francois and, and see you at the next episode yeah and as a reminder as always if you want to listen to the full episode with um, Helen and Caroline, we go into a lot of detail around those topics, especially around the relationship between the EU 
and uh, the Habsburg Empire. And I think also what was really interesting is our conversation on the way for this Habsburg uh, myth or this Habsburg mythology has shaped the way Europe approaches countries like Greece, for example, or like Russia. And I think there's a lot in it here, which might surprise you a lot. So if you want to listen to the full conversation, you can subscribe on our Patreon for as little as five euros a month. Uh, we'd love to have you. It helps us continue to grow and build very cool stuff in the background, which we'll hope we'll be able to show to you in the near future. If you can't do so, don't worry. Uh, but please make sure you help the podcast continue to grow by sharing with friends, by rating or reviewing on whatever platform you are using. And all the help you provide us gives goes a long way. So thanks a lot. Thank Jorge, you, Ronzo. And see you all next week.